Welcome to Refresh, a podcast designed to revive, recharge, and renew your faith and give you the tools to follow Jesus. Refresh comes to you from the Salvation Army in Gwinnett County, Georgia. We meet in person every Sunday at 1030 a.m. or online on Facebook and YouTube at Sal Army Gwinnett. We are excited that you have joined us this week and pray that God will bring his word to life. And now for our speaker. We pick up with Israel falling at the hands of Babylon. The season of exile has begun. Now, it's easy if we were to read our scripture and we look through the Old Testament, particularly at this moment in time, it would be easy to place the blame on Babylon for the oppression that is going to be coming upon Israel. But the truth is, is that Israel did this to themselves. They, Israel, have made alliances with other nations and have adopted their gods. The other gods we read now in scripture are now being worshipped equally to the one true God in his temple. It says that incense are burning to them, that men and women are bowing to them, and that they as a nation are slowly and slowly moving away from the God that has been with them every single step. Prosperity has blinded the king from truth. And when Israel fell at the hand of Babylon, when that happened, the temple was burned to the ground. How could God let such a thing happen? Not only to Israel, but, but to the holy temple. To let pagans bring the temple down to its knees. But I'm going to tell you that it shouldn't have been a surprise. You see, a vision was given to the prophet. He was shown that God was on a mobile throne and carrying were four seraphim that had God. And they were moving away from the temple. Israel had made it known that the temple wasn't his house anymore. So he left. It would seem now that the temple, that, that, that everything It would seem that that slavery and oppression are now their only future. And I have to tell you that it should be. It was Israel that turned the temple into a pagan's palace. It was Israel that turned from God's commands. It was Israel that put their faith in all of the other kingdoms of this world and not into the kingdom that has surpassed time itself. There is no hope in sin. Only captivity. That's it. 
And it was in the captivity of their own sin. They chose this. They did this. That in the captivity of their own sin is when God made his move. While in exile, while in oppression and slavery, God selects a righteous man. He picks one from the remnant. He selects a righteous man who will be God's voice to the hardened hearts of Israel. God's glory falls on Ezekiel. And he gives him vision after vision after vision. That his glory falls on Ezekiel and shows him visions of God's anger with Israel for their disobedience. Visions of God's wrath on the other kingdoms that infected Israel's worship with idols. A vision of the destruction of Jerusalem because of their sins. Visions of agony and pain. And it did seem that all hope was lost. And that there was no return to the prosperity days of King David. And it was then. It was then that God gave Ezekiel another vision. A vision that a new David is coming. Much like how King David was a man after God's heart, this new David will be coming after the hearts of men. God tells Ezekiel, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all of your impurities and from all of your idols. I will give you a new heart and you a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees. I will save you from all of your sins. Despite the hardened hearts of Israel, God was giving something to his people that they didn't deserve. Hope. Let's pray. Father, we just come now and we pray for your anointing to fall on your people. Father, we pray that the scripture, that the word that we're going to be going and diving through not be confusing, but that we understand. We know what you're calling out to us. Father, we know the condition of our hearts. And Father, we pray now that your spirit fall on us. Lord, I pray through my study 
through writing, through to this moment, that everything I say out of my mouth only be from you. If there's anything in my heart and in my spirit that isn't from you, then Lord, remove it. And again, God, I pray as I do, if I say anything that is not of the gospel, not of your truth, then correct me now on this spot. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Good morning. Ooh. God is doing a work. You know this, don't you? He's busy. He's not an absent God. Our prayers are not going to some invisible cloud. But God is on the move right now. It's happening. I'm sure you've seen all the reports coming from Asbury University. Can you show that? This is what's happening right now. That since Wednesday morning, at a normal routine chapel with a handful of students, that when the chapel ended, they did not leave. They couldn't leave. God had grasped them. And the service hasn't stopped yet. Wednesday morning, and it is still happening now. The only difference is that small remnant has now turned into an entire community. And the last I read, 17 colleges and universities have bus students over there now. And listen, I'm not one in my personal faith or journey to be all touchy-feely, but I'm going to tell you this, is that in everything I've read in the Old and New Testament, when I've read and I have seen the moving in the hand of God falling on a people, this is it. And I'm telling you, this is real. This is legit. God is having revival right now. He's having revival. And we as his people, the ones who call upon his name, each of us need to be praying for them and that God do his work, but that it bleeds over to us. And so I say on this subject, two things that came to my mind as I've been following. I've been following it like I've been watching the news. Just seeing report after report come in. In fact, even the local news has now started running this report. The local news is reporting on Asbury's revival. But there are two things that have come to my mind when I see this happening. The first is Zephaniah chapter 2, verse 7. That land will belong to the remnants of the people of Judah. There they will find pasture. In the evening, they will lie down. In the house of Ashkelon, the Lord, their God, will care for them. He will restore their fortunes. And then my heart says, Second Chronicles 7.14, if my people, who are called 
by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn away from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Healing is taking place. And so before I even dive into what I wrote, because what I wrote doesn't matter to what he's doing. He's doing something. I want to pray about that. That's what we're going to do first. So Father, we pray now that whatever is happening there in Asbury, because this, is, this isn't an Asbury thing, this is a heaven thing. That Father, that if you're moving, Lord, may it be so. May many come to, you, to know you. Father, let your spirit fall on everyone. Let it bleed over from the screens into our hearts. And so, Lord, as I pray about what I'm going to preach, what, what, we've written, what we've studied and put down, but God, I have to say, Lord, just do whatever you want to do. And then may we be sensitive to when it happens. So, Lord, I pray that now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I love you. You know that, right? I just said I wasn't touchy-feely, and I said I love you. Look at this. See? Look at that. But I love you. Yeah. And I've noticed that, man, when this Holy Spirit just gets a hold of you, I don't know about you. I mean, I come from West Texas. I'm talking cowboys and stuff. That's, you know, like, you know, riding horses, that kind of stuff. And I don't know what happens is that when the Holy Spirit gets a hold of me, man, it just... I'm not a cowboy anymore. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Well, we're going to be looking at a scripture that's going to be about holiness today. You with me on that? You ready for this? Because I do believe that God has something for us in Gwinnett County right now. He has something right now. And so our journey, as we've been going on for the last several weeks, we've been talking about holiness We've been talking about what does that mean to live a holy life, to follow and chase after God. So what does that mean? And we've looked at some Old Testament examples, but now we're going to look into an example in 1 Thessalonians in the New Testament. And we're going to be looking at chapter 4. And this little bitty short book that, we, that when we open our scriptures and we see that little short book was really first was two letters that Paul wrote to the church in the city of Thessalonica. It's the name of a city. And Thessalonica was a bustling seaport city a very little thousands of years ago when this letter was written. And in fact, it was the largest city in Macedonia and it served as its capital. This was a big town. It was a big deal. This is where everybody was. And so when we know, when we look at Acts chapter 17, when we actually go back and look through the history of what Paul was doing starting all these trips. When we go back to Acts 17, we know that Paul, when he approached the city of Thessalonica, when he got there, he stopped, and the first thing he did is that he went to the Jewish synagogue because that's what he did. Anytime he went and traveled, when he would go and visit these cities, if there was, not always was, but if there was a Jewish synagogue, that's where he went first. He stepped there. And there was one. Surprisingly, there was a Jewish synagogue in this very Roman and Greek city. And so that's where he went. He went there. 
And what we know from Acts 17 is that he spent, Paul spent two weeks, you want to talk about revival, two weeks there in the synagogue trying to convince his own pe- the Jews, his own people, that, that Jesus is the Christ and that he had to suffer and die so that he could be raised from the dead. And what we know from Acts 17 is that majority of the Jews rejected the teaching. But something happened. You see, the scripture says that the majority who received were the Greeks who stepped out of faith and said, we want to know more about him. Teach us. And so we see that there the Jews were so, so upset at this that the Greeks, look how many Greeks are coming. Look at, look at, they're different than us. They're not like us. And now you want us to worship together? And we see that, that they were so upset that they went to the town officials and tried to have Paul arrested. And so he had to leave urgently. And so he left. And then what we see here is that now a few months later, Paul, Thessalonica is on his heart. He, was, he didn't have the time that he wanted to commit to, to, to disciple and to, and to be there, to answer questions. He didn't have the time. It wasn't on his side. So he wrote this letter about six months later and sent it to them. That's why when we read Thessalonians, it's a bond, like particularly at the beginning, it's a whole lot of, man, I really miss you. I wish I could be there. I wish I could be, I, I wish I could coach you through this. I wish I could, I, I, I'm so proud of you. I'm thankful for you. This is why he starts his letter this way. But this is also why he dedicates a portion of the letter to how we should live in Christ. So you know Christ now, you've accepted him, that's great. So here is what that means. And he writes it down. He wants us to make sure that it is understood that the life of a Christian, the life of a believer, is different from the culture of Greece and Rome. It's different. It's not the same. You see, those kingdoms, the kingdoms in, in Greece and Rome, have taken what they, they have taken what is good, what God created as good, and distorted them only for pleasure. This is, what, this is what's happened. This is what we read about. He's writing that now that you, my Greek brothers, we are now brought you, now that you are in Christ. You are to be separated from those kingdoms. No, no, not, not in an earthly sense. Still pay your taxes. You got to do that. That's not what he's talking about. They, they're they're going to stay. They're going to live in Greece. They're going to do all the things that Greeks do. They have to. But he's saying to be separated spiritually. Spiritually. You see, those kingdoms are built on corruption and idols and sin. And it's only a matter of time, as history has shown us, that the foundations will start to sow their cracks and fall. And Paul is telling them in this letter, he's telling them that they are to be separated from such alliances. That their citizenship and their identities are now found in a new kingdom. 
He tells them that they are to be sanctified, set apart, set apart. So he writes, this is what Paul writes. He writes, it is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagan who do not know God, and that in this matter, no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. Well, that didn't take long. Paul started off right here, just right, right at the beginning of the instruction, of, of, of the teaching, if you will. He started right here at the beginning with one of the big ones, right out of the gate. He picked the subject that humanity has been getting wrong since almost creation itself. He decides to come out of the gate with sex. Now that I have all the men's attention, let me tell you why. Let me tell you why this is the thing he picks in his first letter to Thessalonica. Thessalonica was plagued. It was plagued with first century Roman and Greek culture that was defined, proudly defined, by sexual immorality. These were cultures that had no beliefs or values in sexual purity. It was common, very common, and expected to have multiple partners at all times. In fact, an ancient Greek writer named Demothenes gave us an idea of what the view of sex actually looked like in the Roman Empire. He wrote down that we keep prostitutes for pleasure, mistresses for the day-to-day -day needs of the body, and wives for the faithful guardianships of our homes. This was the, the standard. If you were doing this, you were fine. This was normal. This was the culture. And what Paul is saying, in this, why he's tackling this first, this thing, is he's saying, I didn't, I didn't get the time that I really wish I had with you. But let me make this thing clear. Paul is saying that it, this is not the view of sex for the Christian. Instead, he writes here that instead we are to abstain from sexual immorality. In fact, the Greek word, this, the, the Greek word used for sexual immorality is pornonia. Pornonia describes, in Greek, any sexual relationship outside of the marriage covenant. Anything that's, that's outside of the marriage is pornonia. 
either in flesh or in the Christian faith, in spirit. It is the root word used in pornography. This means that the root word that was selected to describe pornography or porn is the same word used to describe sexual immorality. That pornography, by definition, is sexual immorality. Now, before I move forward, before I go on, I want to just say, I'm going to dive into this topic a little bit, okay? So it's all right. Go easy. Yeah. Calm down. We're all good. I'm just going to dive into this a little bit. And nothing, nothing that what I'm about to, to say is intended to prove a point or say my view is right and your view is wrong or, or, or even really to preach at you by any means. That's not what this is. It's just that in my study coming across this scripture, I just felt the need to show you what I found. And I hope, I hope <laughs> that my actions of who I am as a man has, since really arriving here in Gwinnett, has proved the condition in which my heart is in. And so, I want to be clear in these next few statements. Sex does not belong to the world. It belongs to the kingdom of God. This is what I found. It does not belong to the world. It belongs to the kingdom of God. And what we are seeing right now, what we're seeing flooded across our screens right now, is, a result, is the result of the church outsourcing the teaching of sex to the world. We've outsourced it. We, we've, we, we've given it to them. You see, in an era, a long era, of the church that didn't want to really talk about it. We didn't really want to bring it up. It was understood. We all understood what it meant. In that era, what has happened is that our youth had to search somewhere else for their answers. And what they found was the world's definition of sex. Because they're happy to talk about it and to educate. And in accordance, in accordance with Scripture, found in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Malachi, Matthew, Mark, Luke, Romans, Ephesians, and 1 Corinthians, sex is to only take place and marriage, which is defined in those scriptures between a man and a woman. And according, in accordance to Hebrews 13, God in this scripture actually 
grants great sexual liberty within the marriage because the two are one. And I'm going to tell you this. One of Satan's greatest strategies, one of his greatest strategies is to encourage sex outside of marriage and to discourage sex in marriage. This is a lie. It's a lie. He's lying to us. This lie leads us to premarital sex and adultery. That's what happens when we buy into it. And Paul, he writes, he writes in verse 6, here in in, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, in verse 6 he writes that we should not take advantage or rob our brother. And I'm going to tell you, he's not referring to money. He's not saying, he's not going on a bank heist. That's not what he's talking about. He's referring to sex in this scripture. When we are sexually immoral, we are robbing our brother and sister. We're robbing them. Adultery robs our spouse and children. And premarital sex robs your and their future spouse and children. Now, Paul, as he continues to write, (laughs) he does say in the following verse, he says, the Lord will punish men for all such sins. As we have already told you and warned you, For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, he writes, therefore, he who rejects the instruction does not reject man, but God, who gives you his Holy Spirit. And so Paul closes this, this teaching, if you will, this, this, this letter, this instruction. He, t- he closes it with four reasons. Plant four reasons for sexual purity. He warns them that punishment will come to those who choose to stay in a life of sexual immorality. Under God, There is no getting away with that, even if it goes undiscovered on this earth. He then reminds the Christian that we, brothers and sisters, those of us who call upon his name, who said, I've been to the cross, I've accepted his salvation, that those of us who call on his name, he says, we Christians are called to be holy. We're called to be holy. And sexual immorality is inconsistent with who we are in Christ. It's inconsistent. That's not holiness. And his third reason 
This third reason is that, is that living a life of sexual immorality isn't, it isn't rejecting some rule put in place by a parent or, or even a rule put in place by a government, but it's rejecting God himself. And it might seem, it might seem that keeping such a command is impossible. You're asking too much. I mean, geez, we can't go anywhere and not just be in front of us. The temptation is too great. Well, a little bit won't hurt. I mean, whatever. You're, you're asking, this is an impossible command. And that these here, that those who can actually keep to this command only make up perhaps a small minority of the church itself. But I'm going to say that Paul, Paul, he gives us the final reason. He gives us the final reason to show us that such a command is possible. A reason that is actually a promise. A promise that was given to Ezekiel when Israel was in bondage to Babylon. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I, says the Lord, will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees. I will save you from all of your sins. And Paul's final reason, he writes, he will give you his Holy Spirit. Now, we all know what happens next. Right, we cue up the music, there's an altar call, like that's the next thing, right? But let me just say that today, the subject matter, the topic, all this sort of thing, listen, to those of us inside the church who have accepted Christ as Savior and the teachings of the church, this is what holiness looks like. But let me tell you what holiness is not. Holiness is not taking this teaching and then holding it over somebody else. That's not what holiness is. Holiness is taking the teaching and letting it revive your heart, falling to your knees. You see, we oftentimes in the church think that the teaching of any subject is so that we can go and tell somebody else, you're wrong and I'm right. Stop that. That's Satan working. Division. Because as long as we can keep the focus on 
what makes us so different and separate and that I'm right and you're wrong. That as long, if that's the conversation, then that's what we'll have, division. But if we actually fall to our knees and say, Lord, just, just work with me, just do with me, then what we see is Asbury. That's what we see. Well, reports are coming in that, that, that there's not even a person who's leading the services. It's just happening. It's just move. It's just, it's just there. That one report said that someone just walked into the sanctuary and as they stepped in, that a, he said a peace that has never been experienced in his life instantly fell on him. That hours became minutes. It, it, it was just, he, the time had no concept. Time was gone. See, this, this is what God wants. He doesn't want us to be right. So we could be right in the world. That's not what he wants. So that we could be better than everybody else. That's not what he wants. He wants us to be right with him in our hearts, in our hearts. Because, and truthfully, and really speaking, is that if we actually believe that God can do these things, if God can move like that, then he doesn't need us to go and tell somebody else that they're right or wrong. His spirit can move. He can do it. And before we even take that step, and it, I, we have to first start the journey on our knees. That's the only thing, that's the only journey that we can be on. Church, we are called to be holy. We are called to be on our knees. To say that, Lord, I am struggling with sexual immorality. Fall on me. That's what he wants. Lord, I am filled with hatred and anger. Fall on me. That's what he wants. And so Josh is playing. If he's wanting to fall on, Lord, come and fall on your knees. And fall. Let him fall on you. Let the Spirit of God do what He does best. Freedom, salvation, hope, peace. Come, and you will find that His presence is more fulfilling than any desire that this world can give you. Amen. Thank you for listening to Refresh. Be sure to hit subscribe and like us on Facebook and YouTube to never miss an episode. If you liked what you heard, be sure to share it with your friends and family. We pray that you will be refreshed and ready to take on your week. See you next time. God bless.